This episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by McDonald's, proudly serving communities since 1965. I have a McDonald's right down the street from me. I really enjoy going there. And currently, McDonald's is celebrating their crew members who help everyone feel a sense of community whenever they step into a Mickey D's. I'm a big fan of the crew members at my local McDonald's. They are super friendly and super efficient. And whether you know that one crew member who always remembers that you like your Big Mac with an extra pickle or the crew member who always greets you in the drive-thru with a warm smile, thank you to McDonald's crew members everywhere for making our McDonald's visits even more special. McDonald's, I'm loving it. Are you seeing the Prime Minister in Balmoral next week? Yes. He's coming with his wife, Dora. No, that's not right. Nora. Norma. Well, you might want to bring it up with him then. I'll talk to the Admiral and come up with some figures. But it's the first time I've started to consider the unthinkable. What's that? A replacement. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV. I am David Chen, and I'm here with at Joy O'Napping to talk about The Crown. Joy, thanks for chatting with me today. Why, thank you, your royal husband. You're welcome. Uh, so we are here to talk about The Crown, and I'll talk about how we're going to talk about The Crown momentarily. But of course, you can find more episodes of the show at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com and find us on YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter at decodingtv. This is our first episode, diving into season five of The Crown, Netflix's prestigious period drama about the reign of Queen Elizabeth II and the life of the Windsors. All 10 episodes of The Crown Season 5 are out now, but we wanted to break this podcast into different chunks of recaps for you. So today, we're going to cover the first three episodes of the season. Uh, Those episodes are entitled Queen Victoria Syndrome, The System, and Moo Moo. If you haven't seen any of Season 5, you can go back and listen to our preview episode at podcast.decodingtv.com. But we will be spoiling the entirety of those three episodes in this week's episode of the podcast, nothing from future weeks. Uh, Next week, or possibly the week after, depending on when we get to it, we will release our recap of Episodes 4, 5, and 6. That's Episodes 4, 5, and 6. And then we will finish up with Episodes 7, 8, 9, and 10. So 1 through 3 this week, 4 through 6 next week or the week after, and then shortly after that, episode 7 through 10. This is our first time covering a binge show instead of a weekly release here at Decoding TV, and we debated what was the best format, but we think since you at home are probably watching a few episodes at a time, uh, and the season can kind of reasonably be broken down into a few chunks, uh, we are planning to cover it this way. So, uh, And do let us know if you have any feedback at decodingtv at gmail.com. We're not going to change the plan now, but for future times where we cover binge shows, it would be helpful to hear what people think about this this arrangement. So decodingtv at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Before, Joy, did you have anything to add? Yeah, before we get started, I just wanted to slightly revise something that we said last time on the preview episode. At that point, we hadn't seen any of season five. None of it had been released yet. And we said one of the really cool things about The Crown is that you can watch each season in isolation and for the most part, you can watch episodes in isolation. And so it doesn't feel like such a big commitment to have to go, you know, start from the very beginning. That said, having now seen season five, my personal opinion is it really would help if you've watched at least just season four. So if you're debating where to start, and you don't want to go all the way back to the beginning, I think season four would be a reasonable um, context setting for season five. Do you agree with that? Uh, Completely. Uh, I I think... 
honestly, I would say season five really doesn't work very much if you don't if you haven't watched season four or have that context. Um, so much of what's going on in season five depends heavily on the characterization and the character development that's occurred in season four. So definitely got to watch season four before you watch season five. That said, I do still think the crown overall is pretty episodic. And so it is still possible to watch a season five episode and, and have it all make sense. Um, anyway, like on its own, it still kind of makes sense as a self-contained story. But for maximum enjoyment, you really got to watch episode four. Now, Joy, I can't help but notice your outfit today. Uh, if you're watching this video on YouTube, or hopefully it'll be at youtube.com slash decoding TV, uh, then I-, I will just say that Joy is wearing a green and black outfit with a little bow on it, is um, how I would describe it. Thank you. Those are accurate. Um, I... Uh, this is one of my first uh, Diana tribute outfits. I hope to have one each time that we do this podcast. Um, I call this look um, like suffering at Sandringham. It's um, a black watch plaid, uh, which is a traditional Scottish tartan um, with a large asymmetrical bow and a ruffle neck. And uh, suffering at Sandringham being a thing that Diana did every year at Christmas with the Windsors. She would get, you know, socked away to their castle for their annual holiday traditions and seem to dislike it greatly. So um, if you have seen the movie Spencer, which is starring Kristen Stewart from a few years ago, she, I believe it's the story of her final Christmas at Sandringham in 1991. So that's the info for the look. Nice. All right. Is it? I didn't do the like feathered hair because, you know. I'm Asian, and there's only so far we can go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, why don't we dive into the episodes of the show? Uh, season 5, episodes 1 through 3, entitled Queen Victoria Syndrome, The System, and Moo Moo. Maybe we should do, like, overall reactions on the episodes, and then we'll dive into each episode one by one. Do you think that would be a good place to start? Um, sure. So, overall... What did you think of these three episodes, Joy? Um, <laughs> well, um, I think these are three table-setting episodes, and it was a little bit uh, surprising to me that this was the choice. Um, coming out of season four, you feel like you have all of this forward momentum, and you're almost left on a cliffhanger at the end of season four in which yes. I believe the episode is titled war. And yeah. that means that Diana is going, has decided to go to war and it's, it's her, it ends with Christmas at Sandringham and she's having this little, um, tete-a-tete with Philip in which he's saying, can't you kind of just get along? And she's like, well, I've tried and I, you know, uh, maybe no. And so, I expected this season to launch with a lot of propulsive force. And instead, it feels like we're introducing new ideas and new people for three straight episodes and not having a ton of forward momentum in the Diana and Charles storyline. Now, I'm sure that's partly intentional. um, And one of the goals that gets served by that is for us to have time to re-meet all of the recast family members who are played by an entirely new set of actors. Um, But for me, it's a little bit slow as a set of three episodes. What did you think? Yeah. I mean, I think 
episode one is straight up bad. Like it's a it's a terrible premiere episode um, for reasons that we're going to get into. Episode two was pretty boring, in my opinion. And then episode three, I thought was good, although it has not been without its controversies. But like for me, uh, episode three was like a quote unquote good episode of The Crown. It does what The Crown does well. Uh, and and some of the controversy from uh, or not not controversy is wrong word I guess like criticism uh, has come from like Roxana Haddadi my fellow co-host on uh, Decoding TV who uh, if you're listening to this feed you will have heard her talk and me talk about the White Lotus and and like basically how accurate that depiction of the Fayeds is and um, and other issues with that depiction uh, I don't dispute those criticisms at all. But as a piece of television, episode three is the first one that really works for me. But yeah, this is a very rough start to the season, I thought. Um, it's rough because we are taking inherently interesting people and inherently like conflicts with big stakes already attached to them. And it seems like we're doing a lot of throat clearing. So um, I think maybe at this point, my, my sense is having seen the rest of the season, it's worth sticking through. Um, it does, I think, get better, if not perfect, as the season goes on. Um, but maybe at this point we should talk about the recasting, because I think this is a big um, lift for the first episode in particular, and part of why it suffers. Yeah, so the sh- the cast has been completely redone, obviously. Uh, every two years is what happens. And this season, Imelda Staunton plays Queen Elizabeth II, Jonathan Price plays Prince Philip, um, Elizabeth Debicki plays Princess Diana, and Dominic West plays Prince Charles, amongst other recastings that have occurred. And, uh, you know, I I don't know. I think we should get into the episodes because I think we can talk about the casting as we discuss the episode plots. So, shall we dive into episode one, and then and then we can kind of talk about the character, uh, the characterizations from there. Um, let's do it. Okay. So, episode one is titled "Queen Victoria Syndrome," which opens with simulated newsreel footage of uh, Claire Foy as the queen. Hey, hey and there's Claire actually Foy. several. There's actually several people from season one that make appearances either in flashback or another form this season, which is interesting. I don't recall anyone from season two or sorry, season three or four making it in, in the, this season. Yeah, so which is like such an um, interesting choice. I presumed that we would get the most recent incarnation. So like yeah. the, you know, second cast, but in, instead we went all the way back and I actually, and I think it'd be confusing to do more than one set of casts. Well, occasionally I think there's like a background set of photos where it might be multiple people. Yeah. But I, yeah. I, feel like a number of these performances feel more tied to the first set of performances anyway. Mm-hmm. So I actually mm-hmm. didn't mind this. So Claire Foy is there. She's playing Queen Elizabeth. And uh, there's a christening of the latest royal yacht HMY Britannia in 1954, two years after she became queen. This episode has three intertwined stories. The Britannia refurbishment, the physical health of the queen, and whether Charles should have ascend the throne early. We also get to meet John Major, our newly installed PM, and we see that Diana and Charles go on a second honeymoon that is somehow even less successful than their first. We follow the Britannia up the coast of Scotland, picking up Princess Anne along the way, and we somehow end up at the Gillies Ball. So I think that covers a lot of uh, the plot lines. Uh, And I guess how, like, before we even discuss the, the accuracy of this episode, I am curious, like, what did you think of this as a set of plot lines? 
You know, I can't tell if it's sort of like thematically right, but horrible execution, or if they maybe just should never have gone here, comparing the queen to an aging ship. Um, you know, I don't, it feels incredibly artificial to start this season with a framing question of, is it time to get rid of the queen? And basically, is she irrelevant, too outdated, uh, too, is the monarchy too expensive to prop up? Um, and then, you know, that point of view gets assigned to Charles inaccurately, which we'll get into. Um, but I think, like, is that a question that feels pressing to me? You know, as a view, I, I, there were already so many other pressing questions, like, what is going on with Diana? Um, you know, how does Elizabeth and Philip's marriage feel at this time? Um, as we have younger generations being born, like, what are their experiences like? So this just felt like a very heavy-handed choice. Um, and... You know, Peter Morgan loves a strong metaphor for each episode, but this feels like it's meant to be not just the epi- this specific episode's like framing metaphor, but really for the whole season. And it is a question being asked, but it feels like to literally have the queen give a speech at the end that says, you have to refurbish this ship because this ship is me. Every bit of this ship is me. Every bit of China on the ship is me. Like, it's like, you know... It doesn't give like a lot of space for her interiority. We just have to believe like that the stakes that we care about with the monarchy are really like tied up in what we think of a ship. And that, that just doesn't resonate with me as true. I would say the character of the queen in this season is basically disastrous, in in my opinion. And um seasons one and two, Claire Foy was excellent. She's she won awards and she deserves it because uh, she portrayed the queen as somebody thrust into this power and position like against her will, super, super young, uh, desperately trying to keep the family and the institution together. Like it's, she was awesome in the role. Then you had Olivia Coleman, which in my estimation was like a much different version of that same character, um, much more aloof, uh, much more cold, much more critical, uh, and just not as kind, not as human-like as the Claire Foy character, but still, like, compelling in her own way, you know, like, kind of, like, um, absorbing all the information, staying cool as a cucumber, like, managing these differing uh, prime ministers with aplomb. Uh, It's still, like, a very worthwhile representation. This version of the Queen is, like, unrecognizable from the previous... It is kind of, like... Kind of a dummy, you know, kind of like, first of all, in this episode, she's like, everyone's like, oh, you can't, she can't see the newspaper. It's like, dude, this woman has seen like freaking world wars and conflicts. It's like, you don't need to hide the newspaper from her. Okay. It's ridiculous. It's a patently ridiculous storyline um, that they're trying to like hide the newspaper from her because she can't emotionally handle it or whatever. Um, but I would say that her character, the Queen Elizabeth as a character this season is all over the place. Like she is you know, innocent and silly when the the thing demands her. She's kind of serious sometimes, but like she's basically overall someone who I don't take seriously anymore, which is a huge bummer for a show that got me to take this person seriously 
and I've gone full circle and I'm not, not taking them seriously anymore again after watching season five of the show. Uh, I, I think that, that the character of the queen is just like completely ridiculous. This is, there's nothing, there's nothing there compelling me to watch the show from that character. So I anyway. actually had a really different take on it. Um, for mm-hmm. me, the queen as depicted in season five is halfway between the Claire Foy and the, I mean, I think Olivia Coleman's portrayal in seasons three and four made her look so out of touch, like disastrously mm-hmm. sort of like off in her own world. This queen seems to me to still have a preference for that, um, but to have to be dragged into the a more modern era and into dealing with things more directly because she realizes she can't get away with simply ignoring things forever. Um, and that's that set of scenes you're talking about on the Britannia where they're trying to hide newspapers from her. She does spot it, you know, maybe not extremely quickly, but she does say, why is everyone being strange around me? Um, what are you hiding from me? And so um, I found her to be more believable as a continuation from Claire Foy, actually. Mm. Than I did Olivia okay. Coleman. So I'm in a different spot. Now, separate problem, I can't stop seeing Dolores Umbridge from Harry Potter when she's a little bit displeased. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. she's going to like make mm-hmm. me write an acid on the back of my own hand. But, you know, um, overall, I wouldn't say it's as disastrous for me as it is for you. Yeah. All right. Well, what of the storylines in this episode were accurate? How accurate were they? Well, I think there is like a pretty... Uh, I'll give a, I'll say a positive thing first and then, you know, the pretty big negative thing. The positive thing is this family really had a personal yacht, you know, like for 40 years ish. And Mm -hmm. it really was a matter of great debate in the nineties, the early nineties under John Major's, you know, tenure. Um, Like, what do we do with this yacht? Do we really plow 17 million pounds or of that times money, which is like 40 plus million us dollars today into upgrading a ship that mostly just sits there. Like they are seen taking this yacht from London to Scotland. And there are a Mm -hmm. lot of other ways to get from London to Scotland because it's a contiguous landmass. You know, the Isle of Great Britain. And so uh, this is how they do it, though. They kind of slowly like to work their way around the coast and wave high to like the Queen Mum and her own special castle. And then they, you know, they do this like every year. Yes, it's used for other sort of state visits. But you can imagine that like in the declining, you know, empire era, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to need to maintain this and its massive crew. Um so so that is accurate, and I think it is a reasonable thing to highlight as a um, just one example of what it takes to support this lifestyle of having a monarchy when we are, you know, today, uh, for most of us, that's not terribly relevant feeling. Um, and, you know, the less accurate bit is the poll with Charles. So, you know, like technically the Sunday Times did do a poll in 1990 um, that was around this question about it was a popularity of the monarchy in general and the members of the royal family. The show makes it sound as if <laughs> Charles decides to seize the day and shoot his shot with John Major and 
you know, kind of plant the seeds of maybe it's time to like not only kind of bring many parts of this down, but I could be the face of the new monarchy. And maybe you could like kind of help me get rid of the queen, my mom, and, you know, like have have her abdicate and have me, you know, ascend the throne a little mm-hmm. faster here. Um, it is... Before I get into the accuracy, how did this land with you as just a a viewer? You know, because you're just experiencing it as a show, right? Sure, sure. Did it feel um, believable well, based on the characterization well, first, you've seen so far? I guess I had already read like online. John, like John Major had already come out and said like none of this happened, right? And so, uh, and and so that really took the wind out of its sails for me because knowing that it's not true, it's like this is just so silly this is like ridiculous like ridiculous like why the whole show has been about what is the function of the monarchy in the modern age theoretically that works best when it is subtext this makes it text in a rather farcical silly unbelievable way that just made this episode a complete waste for me i did not like it at all well, so what they're building from is, you know, one of the poll questions was, would you support the queen stepping down early at some point? You know, and 47% of people said yes. But at some point is very generic. And like, they didn't all know about Camilla yet, you know, like, so I just don't know that like, this is a really like thing to hang your hat on. Um, and... I understand, again, it's like a framing device, and they they sometimes do these things to kind of, um, you know, build a little sub-conflict in order to crystallize, like, the plot line of the show. But the idea that Charles, who is, like, such a serious and dutiful person, would actually then cut his second honeymoon short to go meet with John Major to ask him, hey, could I maybe, you know, do a little treason, light to medium treason here? Um, and then drop the topic and never bring it up again. Like no, no, no action items come out of this meeting. It's a very strange meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't love it. Didn't love it. So, but what we do learn is that Charles and Diana are still having marital problems. Uh, Diana, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this joy. Women be shopping. Women be shopping is the, one of the feces of the crown. Uh, because you know, uh, Prince Charles is like, hey, yeah, we, we are here to get away from all the shopping. And Princess Diana's like, but what if I want to shop? And it's like, and, and you know, the, criti- the, the portrayal of Diana, I would say, is much, overall, much less interesting and less rich uh, and in some aspects less positive than it was last season. Um, but we only get a glimpse of it this episode, which is like, they're still having marital problems. They're still arguing about stuff. And that's something the crown likes to do. You know, a lot of people have criticized the crown this episode for like, oh, it's such a clunky metaphor and the the queen and the ship and the queen is the ship. And it's like, on the one hand, correct. It's the clunkiest metaphor ever. It's so obvious. It's really almost hilarious when they talk about it. On the other hand, this has always been what the crown is, right? Uh, Is they have always been about metaphors and things in the show being metaphors for the people now the reason i'm complaining is because it's like okay this is a metaphor for something that's like really really should be something that the show is that the show has been about largely um you know like uh 
uh, other things like having something be a metaphor for like the marriage, which does happen later this season. Like that, that makes a little bit. That's a little bit more forgivable. But because it's the, the subject of the metaphor is something that the, the show should be about, that's kind of why I'm giving it a hard time. Okay. Yeah, and Philip um, is then. I mean, Jonathan Price, incredible actor, is given these horrible lines of exposition-y dialogue to make it even more clear halfway through the episode. Like, it's time to think about the unthinkable. You know, it, it is so unbelievable that Philip, the character that we know, who's like so salty and, you know, always like side-eyeing people, right. would give this speech. Um, so if you have to give... The horrible exposition dump dialogue, which happens many times throughout the season. I wish they wouldn't have our principals do it because it often breaks their character. Yeah, and I would say Philip is probably he probably has the worst uh, casting transition, Absolutely. not in terms of like his appearance, but he's the like from seasons one and two to seasons three and four. I think it's Matt Smith to Tobias Menzies, right? Very smooth transition. Incredible. It's like I totally believe those are the same people. Um, from season three or four to season five or six is like basically oh, it's a disaster. Like somebody like, kidnapped Philip. Yeah, and then it's like this is unrecognizable person. from the Philip. We like just in terms of his personality, he's not dropping bombs. He's basically like lovable old grandfather, basically who's like occasionally has an edge to him. Um, it's rough. It's rough. Yeah. So, and any other? I think you yeah, know the first couple folks who played Philip really got. Philip as an actual person in real life who's extremely mm-hmm. well documented for his, you know, yeah. biting sense of humor and for being yeah. kind of this hearty, manly man. Oh, well. All right. So, great depictions of Philip. Indeed. Um, for now. So then we end up at the Gillies Ball. What did you think of the Gillies Ball? Uh, it looks nice. I think there's a there's an amazing shot of uh, Margaret played by Leslie Manville that's used in the trailer where she's kind of just chilling and like everyone's dancing around her, and it's very like, um, you get a sense that she, as always, she's kind of above this all. She's kind of like just like this is you know. But other than that, whatever. Like the, the episode was not good. It was it was I, I was stunned at how rough it was. Like they're going to start season. Like it's been years since we've had a whole pandemic since the last season, and like this is how it's going to start. Very rough episode. Your thoughts on the Gillies Ball in season five, episode um, one? You know, I think all I wanted to say, the Gillies Ball is a real thing. You can go read about it. It's sort of a Scottish traditional real dance um, slash, you know, way to, that they celebrate every summer in Balmoral, um, which is their summer vacation castle. You know, they have <laughs> they have different vacation castles for different times of year. Mm-hmm. As um, you do. As you do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but... And I, I think they chose the Gillies Ball partly because it was a way to kind of get all of our principals together so that we would physically see all the recast folks, even mm, people who don't have yeah. a lot of um, airtime this time, like Margaret. Um, but it was, um, for me, like not tremendously additive other than the Gillies Ball was started by Queen Victoria. And, you know, to the title of this episode, Queen Victoria Syndrome refers to the fact that Queen Victoria lived for such an incredibly long time that it was hard for her son um, when he took over because he was sitting waiting to become king, prepping to become king, becoming himself an older man by the time you know, he actually took that role. Um, And a question that lingers is, would he have been a better head of state had he 
been able to be given more to do earlier? And this is obviously mm-hmm. the question that lingers for Charles. And we know from the beginning that the Queen has a pretty good health checkup. And we know in reality, she just passed away in 2022. So the woman lived a long time. Charles is becoming king in his 70s. He has waited longer than anybody else ever for the throne. So I think they are trying to inject some of that long historical lens that they like to do by bringing up the Gillies ball. Does it land? Mm, Five out of 10. (laughs) All right. Any other thoughts on episode one? No, it's best forgotten. Honestly, you can like leave it on in the background. Like literally you could, you could not watch it and still giving potatoes or whatever. You could basically not watch it and still enjoy the show. So, uh, okay. Season five, episode two entitled the system. Here are the storylines in the system. Philip, Explains how he took up carriage racing. That's a thing. Uh, Philip starts to become close to Penny Natchville, who's Lady Romsey, now Countess Mom- Mountbatten. She is played by Natasha McElhone. Always great to see Natasha McElhone in something. Who has aged very well. I remember Natasha McElhone being in like the Truman Show. Uh, that was like the first time I remember seeing her in something. And she looks like almost exactly the same yeah, as she like did in the Truman wig. Show. Yeah. Um, anyway, always great to see her in stuff. Diana starts to feel desperate to get her side of the story out, and so she decides to participate in a tell-all memoir in which she is not, quote-unquote, interviewed. So she can have plausible deniability. Uh, Philip has a showdown with Diana at Kingston Palace in which he explains that they are part of a system. Uh, It's kind of a rehash of the stuff we had at the end of uh, season four, episode 10, uh, except Philip somehow walks out of the discussion thinking he clearly got his point across and that all will be fine with Diana from here on out. But then the book comes out and Andrew Morton is interviewed and we know that Diana has escalated things further. So uh, that is the second episode. I thought this was pretty boring. Uh, I don't give a crap about (laughs) Philip's carriage racing. I don't give a crap about the carriage racing. And also, um, what do you call it? Uh, The Diana-Philip stuff felt... um, extremely duplicative of yeah, the conversation they had at the like end of season four. It was weird. Yeah, so, well, okay, let me, let's, let's go back a little bit. Sorry yeah. to dwell more in the land of carriage racing. Um, what did you think of, cause I know, you know, because I have read the actual, you know, mm-hmm. events and also speculation. What did you think of the depiction of Penny and Phillips relationship? Like, how did you read that? I would say they have a sweet friendship. That's what I would say. It's very that's kind of killer feeling to me, the way they that's describe it. That's kind it. of the feeling I get. They have a sweet friendship. Yeah. Um, Why do you ask, Joy? Well, you know, I it, it, it's been a source of speculation for mm-hmm. decades now. Um, she was the only non-family member who was at his tiny wedding or tiny funeral um, when he passed away because of COVID restrictions. I believe only 30 mm-hmm. people were able to be at the funeral. Um, so is it like a close friendship or is it like a close friendship? You know, Um and mm-hmm. so I was really hoping we would see her, and I was thrilled. I mean, she obviously has a tragedy um, that in her own life where she loses her daughter to cancer that is part of um, – that they talk about, and it's part of what brings them together within the context of the show. So I was happy I – was, I was hoping to see her, and I was hoping to see carriage racing. Now having seen her and having seen carriage racing, I have had enough of both. I find their relationship very static and very boring. Um, I don't feel any frisson of like tension 
or interest, maybe because it's so sweet and one note. Um, there's some really dreadful, clunky uh, stuff where, you know, the the crown is very interested in history and intergenerational patterns repeating themselves. But Philip gives this terrible line about, oh, I know what grief is like. I lost my sister in that plane crash, bringing us back to one of the worst moments in the show's history when it's implied that Philip thinks he caused his sister's plane crash. Yes, which did not happen in real life. Yeah. Um, so... You know, so really, really playing us the greatest hits of the show, The Crown. Yeah, yeah it's, it's rough. This, I, I would agree it was a bit dull. You know, I wanted to see carriage racing because I had read that this sport kind of didn't exist before Philip popularized it and kind of made it, you know, helped create a, a circuit and bring attention to it. And so I thought, this thing must be really cool. You know, like Philip is like a, you know, athletic dude. And it turns out it's like... <laughs> I'm sorry, but it, it looks like you're like taking the Cinderella carriage like around the drive, you know. And I've read a little bit about carriage racing now, and it's like all, all the carriage racing enthusiasts in the audience are like furious. I listening bet. To this I right bet. Now, Send hate yeah. mail to decodingtv at gmail dot com, and we will read it. Um, they even show <laughs> the more dynamic bits of carriage racing. Mm-hmm, cause, okay, mm-hmm. do you know what dressage is? Yes, it's like when the horse is like dancing. It's like the fancy basically. horse dance. There's a yeah. carriage racing dressage sub competition, which uh, fortunately mm-hmm. they mostly don't get into. I think we see like one shot of it. Um, but yeah, I don't think carriage racing is for me. I don't mm-hmm. think carriage racing mm-hmm. is for me. And um, Fair. Unfortunately for all of us, it is a metaphor for whether you have an independent life and passions um, outside of your marriage. Well, let's talk about the Andrew Morton book because this is much more interesting. And have you read the book at this point? Yes. Yeah. So you have read – very recently you have read the book yeah, which is depicted being right written – which is be, depicted being written in uh, this episode. And I thought it was kind of interesting, you know, where uh, she is – he basically submits questions to her in writing. He never actually talks to her. And she kind of dictates the answers and they go through an intermediary. Like, And that way, it's like she didn't actually participate. But, of course, like people kind of knew that she participated. So what did you think of the depiction of Andrew Morton's book in The Crown Season 5, Episode 2? Oh, two? I think it's pretty accurate. You know, like sometimes, again, like The Crown will take liberties with when things occur. So I'm not sure the TikTok is exactly right. But it is true that Diana was friends with a doctor named James Colthurst, that he um, off he eventually became the go-between between her and Andrew Morton, that he literally rode his bicycle with like stuff smuggled into the basket in and out of Kensington Palace to her apartments so that he could bring in material and bring out tapes. Um, and it is true that she um, fully complied with the book. And then what is... You can see it in newspaper headlines, but um, basically she then publicly claims she had nothing to do with the book. Mm-hmm. So she just outright lies, you know, denies, denies, denies. But everybody within the palace knows it must have been her, so nobody falls for it. And that's part of why um, you can see that she is able and willing to do things with the press that Buckingham Palace is not willing quite to do. I mean, they definitely have their own spin machine and lie outright as well about being sources, but um, this is awfully close to the center. This isn't even her sending out a friend to say this. So um, there's a lot of detailed back and forth about how she made the book and what the reaction was, how she had to throw some of her friends publicly under the bus by saying, 
you know, I didn't authorize them to speak. Um, you know, like it's it's a pretty damaging mm. thing when it goes off as a bomb. Um, but by and large, uh, the depiction like is like right. she she in fact did authorize some friends to speak, and then she had to then come out and say no, uh, they were going rogue, and I didn't right. authorize you know. But then in she order would to do save these face like coy herself. things like go to somebody's house who's her friend who she has thrown under the bus and then tip off the reporters that she's going to be there so she can be photographed walking into their house which is like a tacit endorsement Mm -hmm. it's just Mm -hmm. levels and levels of mind games interesting i think something you shared with me also is that in the wake of princess diana's passing andrew morton like something that's very interesting i find is when famous people die uh journalists consider anything that was off the record like that, those agreements no longer hold, uh, which I, I've been kind of astonished to see in the Twitter age where like I remember when Steve Jobs died, people would be like, OK, well, all the stuff I said I wouldn't talk about with Steve Jobs, I can now tweet about. And it's like, OK, like that feels a little weird to me, you know, like, yes, that person is dead, but like you made an agreement and there's stuff they probably didn't want out into the world. Um but you know, it, it, whatever the case, it, I'm saying it's standard practice that journalists consider off-the-record agreements no longer binding after someone dies. Yeah, but in this so after, case, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty brutal. So he does write a version of the book. A- Andrew Morton does, yep. Um, yep. In which he protects her confidentiality as a source. And then it's like 91, 92. This book is a huge bestseller. It has incendiary incendiary things in it about her eating disorder, how she was treated, this horrible, horrible suggestion that she threw herself down the stairs at Sandringham while pregnant in a somewhat suicide attempt, like really awful searing stuff. And then he makes many millions of dollars as a result. And he had been actually sort of plucked from relative anonymity. He wasn't like the you know mm-hmm. top of the pile of British royals reporters or anything. He then, like the minute she dies in such a spectacular fashion, I mean, spoilers for real life, I think everyone knows that Princess Diana passed away, Um, but that's only five years later. He um, immediately releases the book again, and instead of it being called Diana, um, Her True Story, I think it's Diana, Her True Story in Her Own Words or something like that, and he appends at the beginning transcripts of all of the tapes. So it becomes really clear mm-hmm. that she had been lying the whole time um, about not participating. And I, I think it's... It, it's kind of a character assassination in some ways, even though she has passed away. And, you know, one could argue that you can't character assassinate someone who is no longer with us. Well, but at the um, time, but, she's also... It's like candle in the wind, right? Like, it's she's the most beloved person so the fact that she had lied also the fact of her participation mm-hmm. is also part of the story i um look i mean she really did do it um and maybe she could she or her estate could take the lumps for having done it but um it is certainly if legal uh, i i don't know if it's ethical and it's certainly in poor taste for me um any other thoughts on the book itself like is is it enjoyable read you know did you find it insightful as to who she is as a person you've talked about some of the accusations of the book but like overall what did you think I mean I this is going to sound like a criticism this is a book with an agenda 
she's mm-hmm. at this point still married. She has not even gotten separated yet, and she is desperately seeking a way out of this marriage. She has basically been told over and over that your only path forward is to shut up, go have an affair, or find happiness, or take up carriage racing, or whatever, somewhere else, and do it quietly, and accept specifically that Camilla is just going to be part of the picture. There's nothing you can do about that. You're not getting Charles back. Or to the extent you can, it's it's really not under your control. It'll be if he decides to come back to you. So um, given that it's with an agenda, which I mean, of course, you if you go through these lengths, of course, you have a goal. And that she's a very damaged and fragile person. I think in some ways, I think it's exploitative or self-exploit you know like it, it's not a person who's like in a good state mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. and i think if you are interested in diving further into this question tina brown has written two books one of which is called the diana chronicles and the other is called the palace papers and both of them go over you know there are things in the book like the sandringham thing tina brown firmly pushes back and says it's, it's actually not true like it didn't happen she might have fallen the Sandringham thing where she throws herself down the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. Although, yeah, okay. So. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the Martin Bashir interview later, but anyway. But, you know, um, like that maybe you could, in the most generous reading to Diana, believe that she thought that that happened, you know? So I, I think it's mm-hmm. best to take it not exactly as a grain of salt, but more like not as, you know, it is a perspective and nobody has a an ironclad version of, quote unquote, the truth. Mm-hmm. All right. I would well, read that Peter is Brown epi- before I'd read Andrew Morton, though. All right. Fair enough. Well, that is episode two of The Crown, uh, entitled The System, season five, episode two. So we move on to season five, episode three. Uh, yeah. I- I'll just say, I wish that Princess Margaret had been the one to deliver that this is the system and this is how it works. You know, I think mm-hmm. there were other people they could have had do that talk that yeah. wouldn't have felt. Or, you know, where's Fergie? Fergie's been married to Andrew this whole time. We barely see a whisper of Fergie. And, you know, that's frustrating to me because these are high years for Fergie. Let me tell you. These mm-hmm. are big, big mm-hmm. Fergie in the press news or in the press years. So that was episode two. Diana has just declared war. We're like, oh, my gosh, this show has finally had some momentum. I mean, episode two is pretty bad, but like we're pretty not very interesting. But like we got some momentum going here. And then we begin episode three in 1940s Egypt. So episode three of season five entitled Mumu is in 1940s Egypt. But before we get to that, I do want to talk about the fact that this episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by McDonald's. Speaking of Proudly serving change. communities. <laughs> Proudly serving communities since 1965. Have you been to a now, McDonald's a, recently? I have. How recently? And it was an excellent, it was an, like within the last couple weeks. And it was an excellent experience. Uh, I was, I was like, we actually went to a McDonald's in Hawaii. That's what I was trying to tee up. And that's one of the great things about McDonald's is like no matter where you go, uh, it's the same consistent level of service and food. Uh, and Hawaii actually has a couple of uh, interesting little items. We got a little coconut cake or coconut pie, I yeah, think, in Hawaii that you don't you can, pie. Yeah, um, yes. I love every country I go to. Um, I look at the regional variations at the McDonald's. It's like one of my favorite things. Um, in France, they have like this thing called the croque McDo, which is like a croque monsieur, but like it's a mm-hmm. ham and cheese sandwich and they flip the bun inside out to give it like the flat surfaces to griddle. 
I really mm-hmm. love me a croque McDo. Um, but yeah, the halpia pie. Um, I, I wasn't sure that that would be good, to be honest, but it actually was great. Well, it's no surprise that here at Decoding TV, we absolutely love the idea of community uh, because we are building a co- up a community of TV enthusiasts who truly enjoy each other's company and bonding over our shared love of TV shows like The Crown. Uh, that's why I'm really proud and excited for Decoding TV to partner with McDonald's because they truly care about fostering a sense of community. And one of the ways they do that is through their incredible crew members who work hard to truly make you feel like you're right at home when you shop at McDonald's. Uh, I am always such a big fan of, you know, I personally like using the app uh, when I go to McDonald's these days because they have a lot of great deals in the app. And we just speed down to the McDonald's, use the app, and people are always super fast and friendly when we get there. Uh, I love all the crew members who provide excellent customer service, and they're always super friendly and awesome, and of course, the food is great. So whether you know that one crew member who always remembers that you like your Big Mac with an extra pickle, or the crew member who greets you in the drive-thru with a smile, thank you, McDonald's crew members everywhere, for making our McDonald's visits even more special. McDonald's, I'm loving it. All right, let's get to episode three of The Crown Season 5. Entitled Mumu. So, in this episode, we, we meet a whole new set of characters. And not only do we meet a whole new set of characters, we basically, we basically get their whole life story in this episode. Mohammed Al-Fayed's rise from being a street vendor in Egypt to owning the Ritz Hotel to taking over Harrods for hundreds of millions of dollars. We learn about his obsession with British aristocracy, his employment of Sidney Johnson, and his relationship with his son, who wants to produce movies and have his own identity. So I want to hear about how accurate this was, but what do you think of the episode overall? Like, again, I know there's some criticisms of the depiction of the Fayeds in the show. Like, I, I'm not minimizing that at all. Um, but yeah, I am curious, Like, how did this work for you as an episode? Well, this starts out with... Muhammad Al-Fayed basically being a, the equivalent of a McDonald's crew member providing great service of cold Coca-Cola in the streets of Alexandria um, mm-hmm. in 1947. Um, and meeting um, Adnan Khashoggi and his f- sister Samira. Um, the sweep of this show, the scale, um, that Netflix money, like you really feel it in this episode um, because we are meeting tertiary characters and the people they are related to and yet every one of these people is like really interesting and there's a boundarylessness to the world building mm-hmm. do you know what i mean by that like you always feel like right off camera if yeah. you just turned it there'd be even more stuff going on that you'd want to see um that i yeah. appreciate about this episode and i think that is partly um the crown at its best will do these swerves like it moves the camera to a different place or time a person than you expected at all, and yet still feels like relevant and exciting. Um, as a standalone episode, I thought it was um, surprisingly really strong, despite the amount of ground that has to be covered. Um, sometimes you can get a very shallow sense of people through things like that, but I instead found it more like... Um, like um, not an amuse-bouche, but like, you know, like it, it it made me want to know more about each of these people. Netflix has actually released um, a 
little featurette called Beneath the Crown. And it's available on YouTube. And there's an episode about the real life of Sidney Johnson that I think is great. And it's only 10 or 12 minutes. I highly recommend that. Um, and so even though we don't get the deepest you know, amount of time with each of these folks, um, it is true that all of these different storylines collide in ways that are almost like so improbable that you can't believe them. And yet this all did really happen. And, and that, um, that braiding together of reality and character and s- sweep, you know, is really what makes the crown so special. So I, I thought this was a really successful episode. I agree. I should comment that uh, Sarah Mars over at Laney Gossip uh, writes the following about this. She, uh, talk about the actor uh, Salim Daw. Uh, Daw gets a spotlight episode showing Muhammad's rise from the streets of colonized Egypt to owning the Ritz in Paris and buying his way into British society. Uh, Daw is very good, but Muhammad is reduced to petty social climbing, shown to be desperate to join the white ruling class that once oppressed his people. Uh, Muhammad Al-Fayed has always seemed much more of a person interested in buying the royals than being a royal. And uh, here she quotes Roxana Haddadi, decoding TV co-host, uh, saying on Twitter, quote, My thoughts on that standalone Muhammad Al-Fayed episode of The Crown are that I never read him as someone who adored the monarchy despite its colonial past, but someone who wanted to be the biggest force in every room, and doing so involved diminishing the royals, not being one, end quote. So it's important to note that, like, it seems that this episode departs from the reality of what Muhammad actually was uh, in ways that are arguably quite problematic. But as an episode of television, I think we both thought it was it, – it's like a fairly successful episode of The Crown in doing what The Crown does, which is showing the full sweep of history and showing how these tendrils of these different people in different places around the world somehow end up intersecting in, diff- in un- unpredictable ways, basically. Um, so – and, and I do think that Muhammad is a really compelling figure. You know, like this the story of this immigrant who like uh, wants to like admires British royalty and and has these aspirations, and then goes from like nothing to being in the highest of the high in society. Um, and and it's one of the the best interactions that Princess Diana has in the entire season. You know, when he and her meet at the end at that at that uh, big competition. Uh, that's a delightful depiction of Princess Diana. That's the Princess Diana we knew from season four of the show. Um, so overall, I like the episode while recognizing that it is a little bit problematic. You know, I'm going to just have to say, I, I don't, I don't, th- this episode goes much easier on Muhammad Al-Fayed than certainly the British press. And the British press are themselves institutionalized snobbery, right? But mm-hmm. there are a lot of, worst things you could say about Muhammad Al-Fayed that they don't get into. I have a feeling we might be getting some of them later. Um, and, like, for instance, he jumps from being a Coke vendor in the streets to buying the Ritz. I think there's a baby scene in the middle where he says, oh, and yeah. his name will be Doty. And I shall call him Doty, which is very the crown. I, I, I literally, when we were watching this, I literally said to you, there's going to be a scene where he says to his son, I shall call him Doty. And it almost happens exactly in that way. Um, so, yeah. Um, but like the ellipsis between there, nothing is filled in to explain how he went from the first set of things to the second set of things. And the reason is that in that ellipsis, it's maybe not great. 
uh, you know, you can draw your own conclusions, but like the guy who his his sister or his his wife's brother is um, an arms dealer who becomes a billionaire, mm-hmm. and you can imagine that it's impossible to only sell arms to good guys. I, I'm trying to be like very fair here. Um, mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. the way, that guy's son is Jamal Khashoggi in real life, mm-hmm. who, you know, is no longer with us um, and was the, you know, victim of a horrific, horrific murder um, that has been in the news in the last few years. So I, I feel like the the ellipsis approach to probably both the better things about Muhammad Al-Fayed and the worst things allows them to just sort of tell one storyline, which I think is true, but not the whole picture. And the true thing is that he does want some amount of acceptance. Um, he keeps trying to get British citizenship. He, you know, wants, he's like, if I can have this much, you know, um, money and influence, why is it that I can't have a little bit of class respectability in Britain. Um, and the reason is, you know, racism and the, you know, legacy of colonialism and how class structure in the UK is quite different than it is in the United States. It's not like fluid. And um, I think the thing we're supposed to take away is that he is uh, perpetually on the outside, no matter how, um, powerful he becomes, no matter how rich he becomes, he's always going to have this black sheep feeling, and it positions him perfectly to be with, you know, Diana has those same feelings, and she is going to be in a place soon where she's going to need friends, and he is going to be a person who's going to want to offer that friendship. So they're setting up, you know, this convergence of interest down the road, and I'm okay accepting that. Um, I do not think his his own life is so wild and fascinating and like unbelievable that it could be its own show so there's only so much of it we're going to get um yeah but i i think it's a little bit of too much of a shorthand to call it problematic fair enough fair enough i i think uh i will say he's he's seen kind of simping for the royals basically and i think that's what people are like, objecting to right is like he's kind of a simp for the royals and uh and when in reality it seems like it was more complex than that and you're 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 right that like it it elides other aspects of his past in a way that might make him look more favorable so um there's a couple of other details about this episode uh that are fairly accurate right like the fact that Dodie wanted to be a film producer oh, and yeah, his first movie his first movie was Chariots of Fire, which won Best Picture. Yes. Um, Dodie, of course, also was involved in the movies Hook, FX, and The Scarlet Letter. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So he did this for like about 15 years, I want to say. But um, obviously, to the extent that he's a producer, it's largely because he shows up with money. But that is important, as you know, <laughs> in getting films made. That's a huge part of the work is lining up yeah. the financing. And um, I think he had a preference for this um, you know, it's sort of prestige. Um, I think Hook is great. Maybe it's not prestige per se. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, totally. These are all like quality films. So, uh, and anything else uh, about this plot? There's the relationship between Muhammad and Sydney uh, that you mentioned, and I think many of the details of this meeting and friendship are uh, correct. Is that correct? Is that right? Um, yeah. So Sydney Johnson really did. Um, work at a very young age for the Windsors in the Bahamas. So basically what happened is after 
the Duke of Windsor abdicated the throne, but was still running around making trouble and kind of being a rumored Nazi. I think it might have been Churchill. I don't remember who was like, could we just like send him away away? So they sent him, I think, to be ambassador to the Bahamas for some period of time. Some, you know, like non-critical relationship he couldn't screw up, um, but where it would be like theoretically kind of fun for him to swan around. So he does that for a while. That's where he employs Sidney Johnson, I think at a very entry level, like maybe like a pool attendant. But he ends up accompanying him on this trip to Egypt, which is how we sort of open the scene. We see the Duke and Duchess of Windsor visiting Egypt in 1947. And... um Sydney does sort of rise through the ranks and is um, like a genuinely quote unquote beloved member of staff, setting aside the extreme hierarchy and of both the colonies and in a household like this um, with the people who are in service. Um, So when the Duke of Windsor dies, he does leave him a meaningful bequest, but Sydney's own wife had died very recently and he had four kids to take care of. So he wanted to take more time to be with them. And I mean, someone had to do the raising of them. And for that, the Duchess of Windsor, Wallace Simpson, aka one of my least favorite people in all of history, um, fires him. Um, so that is how he ends up being at the Ritz, uh, working for the Fayyad family and then, you know, being spotted by Muhammad al Fayyad. He really did um, help you know, support him in the tutelage of like the ways of the British aristocracy. He really did um, help enormously with the restoration of the Villa Windsor. Um, And it is, they still own the Villa Windsor. It's a long-term lease, but they have it even to this day, the Fayette family. I did kind of like the idea of like, here's an outsider who, who really kind of wants to get into the the institution of the crown's good graces, and it's just very challenging to do that. You know, d- despite you could you could refurbish their entire villa, and it's still not going to get you into the inner circle. Yeah, and you know, so. there's like so much code to learn, and there's so much. You know, yeah. I don't think I could like successfully sit next to any of these people and have them feel like I am one of them. I don't know what the giveaway would be, um, but. Um, you know, it is. I think not quite accurate that they gave so much back. They actually. So many of the Windsor artifacts that were at the Villa Windsor, which is in the Bois de Boulogne outside Paris, um, the Alfayette family actually ended up auctioning off 40,000 pieces of their stuff um, in the late 90s. And it's I, I have questions around that, um, like what led to that. Um, but some of those like red boxes that we see or like the abdication desk, those got auctioned off. So sometimes it mm. goes to like an anonymous bidder. You might wonder, like, did did the queen buy it back? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought the relationship between Muhammad and Sydney was like really heartwarming. The idea that this guy is basically outright racist at the beginning and then kind of learns about Sydney's humanity because of what Sydney can give him about the information he can give him like and then like by the end becomes like a dear friend you know that that's like a nice comforting narrative it's a little bit pat more problematic because of the fact that there are so few black characters in the crown at all uh in fact this is even a problem like th- this this has created some controversy because uh i think there episode 2 uh, took place in Kenya, 
and there was not a single black character that had a line of dialogue in that episode. You know, and so it's like even when there's been opportunities to have black characters have major roles in the in the show, the show has declined to do that. And um, and so it kind of is a bummer that like um, one of the only black characters in the whole show is like kind of a in this uh, servile servile position to Muhammad, you know. Um, but you know, you know, like there, there's some issues of the episode, but like overall as a narrative, you know, but that's not an issue with the episode, right? That's an issue with the truth. And so sure. I think like the Kenya thing feels like to me a bigger miss, um, or just the fact that you know, no, I'm saying as as a, the show as the show as a whole has like not done a good job. Like, yeah. it, it, it's not like black people have not played any role in any of these events, you know. But the show has not really done a good job of highlighting them. So, uh, and so this people, is one of the few times. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Who fair isn't enough. Australian? Yeah. So, any other thoughts about episode three? Um, you know, again, if you just consume it as an episode of television, like, I found it really moving. I find it moving when, at the very end, Muhammad sort of puts uh, Sydney's shoes together um, after mm-hmm. Sydney has passed in a way that we saw Sydney doing for the Duke of Windsor in the very beginning of the episode. You know, um, this is when the metaphors for me work a little bit better. Like you're saying, it's not exactly subtext but it does require the viewer to put in a little bit of effort so that it's not literally stated like he didn't then say out loud as he has taught me that the duke of windsor preferred i too shall now do his slippers (laughs) it's well it's it's great that they didn't say that this is actually letting the subtext you know uh, breathe a little yeah it gives it a little space um yeah and it's actually quite nice to see the banter between princess diana and Mohammed um, Al-Fayed at the um, races, I think that, um, is it a race or is it, I, I can't remember exactly what the event is, but um, she in real life was really funny. So in addition to being very beautiful and glamorous, um, I think she did have a way with people that was partly disarming because she was a little self-deprecating and a little salty in her own way. And so I think that's the first time you get a sense of it in Elizabeth Delbicki's portrayal this season. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, where yeah, are we in relation some... to the Andrew Morton book? Hard to say. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, could be happening before, could be happening after, could be happening contemporaneously. So we end episode three, finally seeing Diane again. But we also know that the Morton book was just released. It's unclear where we're heading next. We will see. Uh, any other thoughts, Joy, before we wrap up? Um, well, you know, I will say that there are a few things in real life that are hugely famous and important that happen over the next few years. And therefore, you just can, by inference, know that they happen in this season or early next season. And um, I get that they're doing the table setting for those things, but sometimes it's feeling like it doesn't quite have enough there should be a lot of, for me, dread hanging over this season, and I'm not quite mm-hmm. getting that. So I wished we had had more of that in the first three episodes. Um, but, you know, we'll see next week when we talk again how it goes. Next time on Decoding TV, it's going to be episodes four, five, and six. Look forward to that. Find more episodes of the show at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us. Let us know what you think of The Crown, episodes one through three at decodingtv at gmail.com. Find us on YouTube, TikTok, and Twitter at decodingtv. That's going to do it for us today. At Joy O'Napping, thanks so much for chatting. 
great to be here. We'll see you all later. Bye.